We're now in mid-September 2020, and there's certainly lots to talk about the horse race of this election, and I'm sure everybody is compulsively checking the latest 538 forecast while they're listening to this podcast, but this is not a horse race politics podcast, so today we're going to do our take on the campaign's politics in question style, and we're going to ask more about the institutions of our campaigns. And by the way, this is Politics in Question, the podcast about how American political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, the senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari, and I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. So let's start by talking about the uh, political conventions, which are a big institution of our campaigns. Uh, did, did you guys watch the, the conventions? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were riveting. I live blogged them with you, Lee. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we, we live blogged it together one of those nights. Yeah, I watched a, a bit of the Democratic convention. I was on vacation for the Republican convention, so I only only could, could bring myself to, to watch the, the highlights the next morning as, as filtered for me through uh, Stephen Colbert. But, uh, but then I went back and watched some of it later. But let's talk about conventions, which, you know, are sort of these these weird institutions that, you know, they sort of they feel like just like these long infomercials. But, Julia, you've written a bit about the, the role and purpose of conventions. So let's talk about that. Like, why do we even have these long political conventions and, and do they even matter? Yeah. So these are there's a lot of uh, there's a lot going on in these questions. The the first thing to think about with conventions is that this is an institution that dates back to the 1820s and 1830s. And the convention was really useful at that time to bring together um, state and local party activists into one kind of national party and coordinate on a presidential nominee um, and eventually to coordinate on on a party platform. So these used to play a very like practical workday purpose. And that hasn't been as much the case since the mid-1950s. It's where where the formal nomination takes place, um, but the contestation over that nomination has taken place increasingly um, off the convention floor. Nevertheless, so I wrote a little bit for, um, for 538 about important convention moments in kind of loosely defined modern history. So I went back to 1948, but there are also some recent examples of of things that happen at conventions that matter. And part of that is that having a, having a set of live in-person proceedings um, allows for, for segments of the party that aren't as powerful to disrupt those proceedings. And for us to sort of witness party conflict playing out live um, and possibly for like the, the balance of, of power in the party to change or to, to be contested. So I think that they have mattered past the point where they were the main kind of moment of nomination or the delegates were truly choosing and, and bargaining among themselves and voting multiple times and, and things like that. Um, I do think these live in-person conventions can produce moments that matter. Do you think they ever will again? Should, should we keep having these these week-long conventions? Should the networks keep covering them? James, what do you think? Julia makes an important point about how conventions provide a platform or a venue for 
party for party factions to try to contest uh, contest the dominant establishment pick or however that may play out. We can think about Ted Kennedy challenging um, Jimmy Carter. I think that was the last time we saw a major fight in a, in a convention or heading into a convention. We obviously saw uh, rumblings of that with and there was a lot of speculation heading into the 2016 Republican National um, Convention. And so they do matter. But there's a practical case, I think, for them, which is simply when you have collective you know, organizations, uh, organizations that represent lots of different people, they have to have a venue to make their decisions. And while, yes, today our politics and Julia especially can can speak to this, have evolved away from um, conventions as being really a site of business where they actually make these decisions. The decisions are typically made before you go there. They still have to be formalized in those places. And if those decisions are ever contested, that's where they're going to be contested. And I think that that's an important case to make. I don't understand how it would work without conventions, how our uh, presidential process would work. Where would we, um, where would the voters, where would the partisans uh, pick their nominees and how would they do it and how would they disagree about it and how would they resolve those disagreements? I'm, I have a hard time picturing how that, what that world looks like absent conventions. And one, just a little bit of trivia here. What was the uh, the first convention? The very the very first party to hold a presidential convention. It's the anti Masonic party, right? Yeah, the anti the anti Masons, the the Masons. I get all that, but you know, it seems like conventions have. You mentioned Ted Kennedy, you know, challenging Jimmy Carter, and that was 1980, and that was 40 years ago. That's a long time ago. It seems like every convention now, we already know who the nominee is because we, you know, there's no, everybody's amassed enough delegates. And, you know, the the conventions as televised are just this sort of pageant of, of speeches and, and glossy infomercials. Does that, does that serve a purpose? I guess maybe you're arguing that maybe we should go back to the to the old style of conventions in which we, we actually didn't know who the party was going to nominate. And so there were like real interesting fights among different factions that made for. Well, just to interject real quick, I think and sorry to interrupt, but in 1860, you know, it, the Whig and, and Democratic parties were kind of falling apart, you know, in the late 50s and, and a generation before it was hard to see how that, you know, they could accurately predict, I think, that slavery would be the issue to pull them apart. But the institutions that existed seemed like that were just getting started seemed very robust at the time. And so what I would submit is that, yes, things work until they don't work. And when they don't work, then we need different mechanisms to make decisions. But the, the fundamental constant in our politics is that those decisions are going to be made in person. They have to be made by people. And they have to resolve their disagreements in a place, in a venue, in an institution. And, and conventions are that institution for better or worse when it comes to picking your presidential nominee. Now, you may use the outside game and you may use primaries and the media and other things to influence what makes what happens there and to make it a fait accompli. But you may not always be successful in that. Julia, you want to talk about the, the joys of, of in-person decision making? I mean, I guess I want to talk about a couple of the examples of, of things that... Um, I, I wrote about it in my piece and areas where this sort of intra-party conflict in the conventions like reared up and gave us somewhat of a, a preview of what was to come. And the way that that's and I want to kind of talk about why that's impossible on, on Zoom or whatever. So 
One of those examples is a, the 2012 Republican convention where essentially, you know, Mitt Romney won the nomination pretty easily, but not every state allocates its delegates by primary. Some actually select the delegates in a separate convention, and the Ron Paul campaign kind of mastered that process and kind of took over the Republican Party in a couple of, of states, including Maine. And those states had the intention of putting Ron Paul, this is a former representative from, from Texas, libertarian, Republican, putting his name into contention at the, at the convention. And they had enough... They had enough votes to do so, and the Republican Party just sort of like shut it down. They didn't want to have, you know, they didn't want to have this show of disunity in their national, um, in their national convention, and subsequently changed the rules to make it harder to put, um, to put a candidate's name into into contention. And there was a little bit of like a, a scuffle at the convention. There was some Ron Paul supporters that made some noise, and so you might say, okay, this is a fringe candidate fringe people have taken over some some state parties in places where the rules allow for that but i think that this this anti-establishment dynamic i think we can all agree that this became an important force in the republican party a couple of years later um and i think that it it sort of shows this tension between conventions that are supposed to be um these this show of national unity and this like unified idea and on the other hand, the reality that especially in a country like ours that's big and diverse and where we only have two parties, there's going to be a lot of diverse perspectives within a party. And there's some value in um, in, in getting buy-in from, from primary losers and for doing something like the Democrats did in this case in 2020, where they did have um, someone place Sanders into into nomination contention um, before they did the, the roll call vote, which, of course, Biden one, there is some value in that symbolism, and there is also some value for for smaller factions in the party of being there in person and being able to sort of disrupt things. Um, and you also actually saw this in 2016 in the Democratic Party, and I think it really it really illustrated some of the ongoing tensions and frustrations between the Bernie Sanders camp and the Hillary Clinton camp. And a lot of people think those were, those were electorally consequential and certainly dro- they drove subsequent, subsequent party development, um, subsequent changes to the democratic nomination rules. And that also kind of foreshadowed some of the emergence of, of progressive ideas and candidates in the democratic party. So I think that's sort of what we get out of these conventions, even when the nomination isn't in question. And the, my sense of this is is the more that things become about TV and about projecting a certain kind of image, the more that that empowers the dominant faction in the party to kind of draw up the blandest message possible um, and to kind of paper over some of these representational disagreements. And ultimately, it does a disservice to parties' role as representative institutions, a role that I think has already been pretty pretty badly damaged. So I think it, it, it is a real loss for when people can't meet in person in ways that 2020 has given us occasion to reflect on and try to name. And I think that that's, that's part of the story of party conventions. That's very much a story of 
of the balance of power within parties. Yeah, I think that's right, although I think things have certainly been trending in that direction for a while in which the dominant faction gets to really control the programming uh, and it just does feel like this you know, week-long pageant. I mean, I, I guess it's useful in the sense that it gives the, the, par- the dominant faction in the party a chance to kind of present its vision for the party. Uh, although, you know, watching, you know, these two conventions, it seems like the vision that both sides have presented is that if the other side wins, it would be a disaster and isn't our candidate such a, such a great guy. That, that's what I take away. But let's let's talk about, like, who actually watches these conventions. I mean, is it, is it just old people and journalists? We're not very old, are we? Depends who you ask. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, about, it looks like NPR had some reporting on the details of, of how many people watched each convention each night. But it looked like on, on balance about 30 million people watched last month. And um, I, I looked for some stats to compare that because I don't actually know anything about how TV audiences work. Um, so I just I just Googled the first TV events I could think of. Um, in the Super Bowl in, in 2019, um, 98 million people watched and... Um, and like 13 million people watched the Game of Thrones finale. So <laughs> so that's TV to me. Party conventions, Game of Thrones, and the Super Bowl. And um, how about the Tour de France? I mean, how many people watched that? I did not look that up, James. Uh, I mean, it's got to be like, it's got to be like 1 billion people watch the all Tour over de the France. world. Yeah. Okay, uh, I hadn't thought about that. This is see, this is why it's good to have group activities because when one person does decision making, you're reliant on their their limitations and their limited view of the world. So anyway, so I don't know if that gives us much perspective on that on that viewership. Um, I mean, I think there's people in in the world of media scholarship have done studies about this, and it, not surprisingly, the main people who watch conventions are people who are interested in the election, and as we know from other political science research, that tends to be people who've already made up their minds. But, you know, that that probably also includes if there's people who are interested in the election, they're in that weird intersection of interested in the election and not totally sure what they're going to do, or also not sure what level they're going to participate at, right? So they might have decided who they'll vote for, but they might be balancing out whether they might get inspired to volunteer on a campaign or do uh, text people. That seems to be the big campaign activity now. Get a yard sign. You know, how much they're going to display their interest in the campaign or try to mobilize others. They might be deciding about that. We might imagine that some of those folks are watching the convention for kind of signals about what exactly it's about this time. Yeah. And what is it about? (laughs) Yeah, you were tweeting about that, Lee. I don't know if you saw. I responded and was like, "I someone should should update their their you know their work about this since I've written on election interpretation." But I will shut up and I want to hear what James has to say about this. Yeah, I think that even for people who don't watch the conventions, the fact that so many people report on the conventions, that uh, talk about the conventions, write about the conventions, that has to filter into. I mean, this isn't my area of expertise, but it seems to me that if you you know you're going to pick up the paper. In the morning, you know, the conventions are going to shape that coverage. If you're going to watch you know, the Today Show or you're going to you know, listen to your favorite podcast, uh, like Politics in Question, on the way to work, 
then you're going to hear about those conventions in some way, shape or form. And that's going to help you hopefully, you know, make up your mind about who to vote for if you are truly undecided. I mean, is that is that a correct way to look at the world and understand it? Yeah, I, this is like what, what the historian Daniel Borstein would call a pseudo event, which is a, an event that is just staged in order to get coverage. But like the moon landing. Yes. Also like the moon landing. First, it's it's Hollywood staging the moon landing. Then it's Hollywood staging the Democratic Convention, which didn't actually happen. Yeah. So so let's I want to I want to dig into like this question of what is this campaign actually about and like what what did what are we learning about the democratic party and the republican party both through the convention and uh, the subsequent campaigning so what what did we learn about the democratic party from the democratic convention james you want to give us your impressions there sure and i'm not sure i have any very deep insights here but it seems to me that in general Conventions are going to reveal a lot about how parties see themselves, and I think Julia is correct about the the basic um, divisiveness of, and not or just the divisions, I should say, within both major party coalitions, and that conventions are an opportunity to manage those coalitions and to also upset those coalitions. But they also suggest that the parties it reveals how the parties see the electorate. And it reveals how the parties think about what the electorate wants. And so I think with the Democratic Party, the, the messaging was, was much different than the Republican Party because they have a different view of the electorate right now. And they have a different view of what is needed. And they were highlighting, although you saw some of this in the Republican convention, which we'll get to, highlighted you know diversity, um, you know racial and ethnic diversity. I think the tone was, was a little bit kinder and gentler. Um, there was, it was a little bit more empathetic. And so I think that says a lot about, um, you know, how the Democratic Party both perceives itself, but also more broadly, um, how it perceives the electorate and what it thinks the electorate wants. Yeah, so I've been struggling with this question about what the election itself is about. And so instead, I'm going to say what I thought about what the what the conventions were trying to convey and see if there's something that coherent come, that comes out of that. And I suspect the answer is no. Um, so I think the Democratic Party is experiencing a kind of internal public internal set of disagreements um, that are not like anything that's been seen maybe since maybe since the sort of Carter Kennedy era as far as the kind of public attention that they've that they've received and the kind of clear emergence of a a left faction. And that's gotten a lot of attention in the 2018 midterms and then in the the early parts of the primary campaign. Um, and I think that the, the convention could have gone a lot of different directions with that. And the direction that they went in, I think, was to sort of acknowledge some of those key figures. So we have a speaking slot for Elizabeth Warren, which was like one of the only policy speeches, and obviously a speaking slot for Bernie Sanders. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, 60 seconds to introduce Sanders' nomination with, with a lot of symbolic import, but not a lot of highlighting of her her own ideas um, as a young rising star in the party. I felt like the the Democratic Party wanted to acknowledge that faction in a pretty perfunctory way and then instead pivot to, you know, there were lots and lots of former Republicans featured and a lot of talk about the election being a referendum on democracy. And so I think that there are two kind of narratives that the party was trying to push there. And one was 
that this is the party of reasonableness. And this was something I think was going on with the, the featuring of the former Republicans. There was a lot of talk on politics Twitter about, is this, you know, who are they trying to reach? Are there really former Republicans who are like watching the DNC and, and just waiting for John Kasich to tell them what to do or Susan Molinari? And I think that actually the audience for that is moderate Republic or moderate Democrats, older, maybe older Democrats who are alarmed and turned off by people like AOC and Sanders and Warren. And this was a reassurance to them that this is still, you know, this is still the party of reasonableness, right? We might have some people who have further left beliefs, but this is the party where you can sit down and have a reasonable conversation with someone that you disagree with, who's also reasonable. And I think that's sort of an identity marker. I'm not, I don't want to I don't want to come down on this too hard, and I also don't want to make it sound like I endorse this. I just, um, I just think it's what happened. This is sort of an identity marker for Democrats who don't see themselves as, as leftists. They don't see themselves as super woke. Um, they don't see themselves invested in some of the more like anti-status quo philosophies that have come out of younger activists in the Democratic Party. I do think this is their evidence suggests a significant age gap. Um, but they want to see themselves as members of a party that's like, you know, is reasonable and tolerant. And that's how they see themselves. And they wanted to, the party was trying to, to highlight that and to like move away from this leftist sort of, sort of identity um, and instead depict that you know, that as the dominant identity. And then I think the other thing was really to frame the election. And, and I think they were trying to do what, what you were sort of calling for, Lee, which is create a dominant narrative with the, of what the election is about. And that that attempt was to create a dominant narrative of this election is about fundamental tenets of American democracy. This is about who we are. This is about Trump as a threat. There was a lot of focus on Trump. There was very little focus on Republicans themselves or their their policy perspectives or the Democratic Party and its policies. It was like very Trump focused. Um, and then that that is something that, you know, we found the thing that unifies the Republican and Democratic parties because the RNC was very Trump focused also. I was really struck by how much it was not at all about policy, uh, except for a, you know, a few, few quick, quick bursts. Uh, and how much it was, you know, really about, yes, democracy. I mean, that was yeah, a key takeaway. And, you know, the threat of Trump and, you know, a lot about uh, Biden as uh, a caring, decent person who you know, is, is going to feel your pain. And that, that's the, the sort of... Uh, personalization of presidential politics uh, that, you know, it's you're electing somebody with a, with a good character and a good heart. And, you know, th there are a, a lot of, as you know, as we were discussing, there are a lot of, of strong policy disagreements that are, are going to certainly play out if Democrats get unified government played out in the primaries. Uh, but right now, it's all about the, you know, Joe Biden's a decent guy. Trump is a threat to the republic. And I guess that's what the Democrats want things to be about. But what about the Republicans? What, what do 
What do we take about that? And Julia, you wrote a piece uh, for 538 about whether the Republican convention nominated, uh, uh, sorry, the Republican convention violated uh, some fundamental democratic values. So you want to tell us about that a bit? Yeah, that was, I have to say, this is one of the pieces I um, enjoyed writing the most over the course of this year, although it was a little bit, the subject matter was a little bit alarming. Um, you know, there were a number of things that were done at that convention that were not normal. There were several, so instead of trying to put them in categories, I'll just sort of list to remind um, anyone who may have blocked this out. So there was a live um, citizenship natu- naturalization ceremony, which Trump um, kind of oversaw and acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf um, administered, where citizens were sworn in. Um, Trump pardoned someone at the convention. There were numerous speeches by Trump's kids, which is so not super unusual, but they got a lot of airtime and I think kind of different airtime than we typically see families get. Um, and then I think the last one and the one that seemed to really frustrate a lot of political scientists was the final acceptance speech was given on the White House South Lawn um, using both the White House and kind of the, the DC area in general, the um, the Washington Monument as a as a backdrop with you know Trump Pence signs everywhere and fireworks. So the piece that I wrote, what I really wanted to do was to take apart what are the values at stake here, right? Why are these things not typically done. And it's not enough to just say, well, this is, they're not done. There was a lot of talk about the Hatch Act, which prohibits federal employees from, from undertaking political activity. And I did a little deep dive into the origins of the Hatch Act, which are, which are incredibly political um, and forged in the conflict um, between FDR and various political opponents, including conservative Democrats. But I think what's important to note about about the Hatch Act and about like civil service rules in general about um, political activity and civil servants is that these have a dual purpose. They're supposed to protect elections from abuse of power um, people for people who hold power, right? To keep people who hold power from using their positions to gain a, a you know, an advantage, an unfair advantage in the elections. Um, and they're also intended to protect the, the civil service and the and the practice of government from being influenced unduly by politics. So that's, you know, those are two really important, two really important values. And the third thing that I think got less, less play, um, and that I wanted to highlight in my in my 538 piece was the way that Trump used the pardon and the naturalization ceremony were very personalistic. So those are not things the president just like are, you know, part of the individual president, right? Those are institutions. Those are powers of the presidency. They're not favors the president does. And with pardons, that's like, that's always kind of, it's always kind of on the edge, right? Of course, pardons are political and they're, their decisions individual presidents make, and there's always there's always controversial pardons. Um, but to highlight this idea that, you know, this is Donald Trump is changing this person's life because he's this, just this wonderful, empathetic leader, and so he's using this power in this way, or Donald Trump is giving these people citizenship, is really to rob the 
you know, to rob the office and the American people of that kind of that kind of gravitas that's separate that comes from the Constitution. It doesn't come from one person. And the presidency and the South Lawn thing, the White House speech was that too, right? These don't belong to a candidate. They don't belong to a party. They don't belong to a president. They belong to the Constitution and the people and they belong to everybody. And that, that I think is really, really bothersome. And part of the reason we have conventions and we have political symbols is to create this sense of continuity across administrations and across parties and across time. And to, to try to personalize that is just really, I think, a profound violation of the most important and fundamental values of a, a constitutional democracy or a constitutional republic. It doesn't matter. In fact, the republic the republic crowd should be even more pissed. I'm not sure if I'm pissed. I found it kind of hilarious that a speech about the, the speech on the White House lawn, which was really geared towards how Trump stands up for your everyday average American, kept cutting to Secretary Mnuchin on the front row and talking about, I'm you know, and Trump's saying, I'm doing this for you. And he's clearly speaking through the cameras and trying to reach people out in the hinterlands. But then the TV, when he says, you know, I'm doing this for you, keeps cutting to uh, to Mnuchin, who does not strike me as your everyday average ordinary American in any way, shape or form, along with a whole host of other people who were in attendance. You know, to it, I agree with Julia to a degree. I think, you know, these things in the modern era, uh, you know, conventions have always been, or not always, but at least in the modern era, strike me as something that are deeply um, personal, while also trying to kind of reaffirm um, the the institution of the party itself more generally. I think what makes this one so interesting is and so problematic is that that happened on the White House lawn, and and and. Uh, you know, as Julia says, and that's interesting also for another reason, I think, which is that, you know, Trump really ran as and has tried to govern as and is seeking reelection as the candidate against the swamp, if you will. He's against the establishment, even though I think he's governed in a much different way. He's that's how he presents himself and to then drape himself. And, and I think what is really and truly unprecedented is the, you know, the fact that a candidate feels that by standing in front of the White House and by having fireworks displays over the Washington Monument and basically saying, I'm the person who's here. And that's a good thing. That's really I mean, I can't I can't think of another candidate who's who's seen that. I mean, most of the candidates, the most incumbents, it seems, in these presidential campaigns try to maintain their bona fides as a is uh, someone who is running against the system, if you will, especially when the things aren't going well. And Trump's doing that while literally standing in front of the kind of the symbols of that system. But I think also the the, the Republican convention, uh, the messaging that came out of that was also very divided in a whole host of number of ways. And I think it really highlights, the, again, the divisions that Julia's mentioned with the Democratic Party and that they're also present on the Republican Party. And you have criminal justice, like that was a big theme, a major theme of the Republican convention. But you also had existing alongside this a very strident and a very aggressive law and order message that is directly at odds with uh, the criminal justice narrative. And the if you look at the opposition um, in the Republican Party against the criminal justice reform more generally, it is going to come from law and order Republicans, people who you know, really forged their partisan identities in the 70s and 80s. 
and uh, were very opposed to criminal justice reform. And it's, it was interesting to see how the, the parties trying to keep these things coexisting in the same time, in the same place, in the same party to try to preserve their, their coalition. And another thing I think that speaks to the fact that the parties are divided is the platform, right? I mean, the establishment has never really, or at least in recent years, the Republican establishment doesn't take the platform very seriously. It's something that conservatives always, you know, try to take over the platform committee and they get stuff in there or they try to force fights on these issues on the on the convention floor because they're trying to raise awareness. They're trying to make it, uh, you know, force the party to adopt certain things. And, and they see the platform as something that's meaningful. But this year it was they didn't they just kind of reaffirmed the platform. They didn't even adopt the new a new platform. Um, they they just literally they just reaffirmed it. And while yes, the you know a, a platform of a party, a major party, is supposed to be about you know you you affirm what the president did over the past four years and what your party did over the past four years. You also lay out an agenda for the next four years. And what strikes me. Is it may not be a serious agenda, but there's still some sort of agenda. And the president just listed a bunch of bullet points. And I think the Democrats are also guilty of this and their lack of policy. Um, but, you know, in the fact that there's not many policy speeches in the convention, there's very few talk, little talk about the details of what will happen or what they'll try to do. And so the president, you know, his, he lays out this bullet points and uh, things like support the exercise of Second Amendment rights. Right. Protect unborn life through every means available. What the hell does that mean? Like that, those are platitudes. It's not a platform. That's not an agenda. And I think the Democrats are guilty of that too. And I think it really speaks to how both parties no longer take this entire process very seriously because they're not really there. There's no con there's no concept of we're going to get in and we're going to do these things or we're going to try to do these things. There, it's just like let's say what we can so that we can win. And when we then get into office, we're going to you know have this vague notion of preventing the republic from falling into the ocean. But the second they get there, they realize oh we got to go out and try to win again. So let's continue to 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 embrace political platitudes. And I think that's the real tragedy of our politics today. Yeah, I, I was also struck by the fact that the Republican Party didn't even bother to have a, a platform. And I mean, I, it seemed to me that part of that was, or a good part of that was probably that if they opened up the platform, that was going to be a, a place where there would actually be some serious fights within the within the Republican Party. Uh, and, you know, in some ways, Trump's I've started to wonder if Trump's success is largely uh, because he unites the different factions by just putting all of the focus on the Democrats uh, and just in in his ability to constantly escalate the conflict, he forces people onto one side or the other. And it seemed to me that the line that I remember, will remember most from this campaign is actually Mike Pence's uh, line about this election is whether America remains America, which is a really big thing to, to say. What is, I mean, what is, can I just say, what does that even mean? Number one. And number two, I was, I'm just curious, and I should probably do my homework before I say this, but I'm not going to because I hope some of our listeners will instead and call me out on it if I'm wrong. But, you know, it seems to me the things that Trump and, and the, is attacking Biden on, if you compare Biden's voting record in Congress to Mike Pence's on these issues, my guess is they're almost identical. 
on things like trade and foreign policy and other issues. My guess is Joe Biden and, and, and Mike Pence, who's standing up for America and that America is not going to be America if Joe Biden wins, is it's like I don't it seems it seems laughable to me. But, you know, that's maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Can I weigh in on this? Of course. I want to jump in here. Having not also looked side by side at those records, but I suspect that you're right that there's some, to the extent that there's going to be overlap between Mike Pence, a very conservative Republican, and Joe Biden, a sort of standard issue, middle of the road Democrat, it's going to be on trade and foreign policy. Um, I think you know there's there's two things going on here. One is that one of the other kind of bizarre moves of the RNC was this pivot toward both the sort of reform of criminal justice and the ending of wars. And I think these are these are both issues that have sort of recently flipped in the American political consciousness, right? The idea that what's what's now popular is to is to talk about criminal justice reform as opposed to being tough on crime and you know wars are bad. 90s. What's that? And wars are bad. Right, and wars are bad, which is also sort of contravenes the the um, the conventional wisdom of the Cold War and then the 9-11 period. And so they're sort of like trying to capitalize on that. But in fact, both of these things are, they're pivots from the conventional Republican position. They're pivots from what's still happening in kind of mainstream Republican conversations. But more importantly, for both parties, they're very difficult to pull off. They're very, they're very difficult actually to, um, to produce. And Obama found that as well about, about ending wars. Um, so, you know, I thought that was a, that was a, an interesting move, and by interesting, I mean a way of creating political theater that was completely divorced from reality. Um, and I think that that's connected also to the point you make, James, about the parties kind of saying, like, engaging in to use to put our Mayhew hats on, engaging in, in position taking, um, as opposed to actually doing things. What's interesting about this, and to Lee's point about you know America's going to end if you know, and I'm, Lee's not saying that, but that's what Pence said. It's it's just literally the 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 inverse of what the Democrats are saying, which is America is going to end if if the other side wins. But what I find interesting from a Mayhewian perspective is that position taking typically involves some sort of act, right? I mean, it's it's not always purely just rhetorical. I mean, you do things, you act in certain ways that allow you to take positions. And and what is happening now, or at, least, at the very least, you don't act in ways that are directly at odds with the positions you're taking. And it seems that today, the two major parties in terms of the presidential candidates and also what their actions in Congress are directly at odds with that. They take these positions, but then they act in a completely opposite way. And, and either by not doing anything to advance those positions and try or even trying, or by actually doing the exact opposite of those positions. I am struck by the, I mean, I think this has been a theme in our conversation, but it, you know, it really struck me in the conventions is just the, the, the total lack of, of policy. And I have no sense of like, what is the Democrats top priority if if they take unified control? What would what would the top priority of, of the Trump administration be if they want a, a second term? I, I mean, I don't think even Trump knows. I mean, America remain America. What, are we going to change the name? Like, what, what does that mean? I, and, and I think that's the problem of why I have this hard time understanding what this election is actually about. 
because I, I it just seems like we're as James says we're we're just talking in these these symbolic platitudes. Uh, I, I mean, maybe it's it, maybe it really is just about the, this this you know American identity, and that's not a policy thing, and that's just a, a sort of cultural identity war, which is you know incredibly dangerous. Uh, and one reason why I think a lot of people are really worried about the the outcome. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, what 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 is this election about? What what, what is there is there going to be any mandate and conferred on on any party that wins here? I mean, are we just in this stalemate? And you know, I'm looking at the at the the polling averages, and you know, a lot has happened since since March when this became a two person race, and the movement in the polling is like basically non existent. So is anybody changing their mind? Is anybody persuading anybody here? What's going on? I think this is a great point about how little the polling has moved. I want to actually, um, I mean, I want to address this mandates question since I did. So I did write a book about mandates. And, you know, the reassuring news is that mandate claiming and the construction of a mandate after an election is only kind of loosely tied to the election itself. And I'm being sarcastic. I don't think that's really good news. But I do think that there may be election narratives that that spin out of this and that may or may not kind of take hold that are difficult to predict now. Um, and then will be shaped by the political conditions under which, you know, the, the next administration, whether it's a continuation of the Trump presidency or whether it's Biden presidency, what, uh, whether um, the conditions are which that administration begins. Um, the the other thing that I want to address is we're talking about Pence saying America won't be America is to to kind of say the thing that is is clearly there, which is that this is about mobilizing xenophobia and i think that the way the rnc went about this was interesting because on the one hand they they really kind of doubled down on some of these ideas about american character and identity about democrats about socialism and mobilizing socialism has like or fear of socialism has traditionally been linked to um to xenophobia fear of of immigrants bringing crazy ideas from from foreign lands and I think that that was going on and it was like counterbalanced by this weird sort of highlighting of a diverse set of characters, both within the Republican Party and not, and kind of talking again about like criminal justice reform. So it was like this, this sort of weird vacillating um, between those two positions, like the party, whoever put together that program was trying to make space for the deeper xenophobic messages and kind of mobilizing mobilizing grievance and mobilizing white ethnicity perhaps the most the most striking example of this was the the mccloskeys the couple from st louis talking about their quiet neighborhood being interrupted by protesters so that you know that's what i think was going on and in that sense the 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 assembly of the the program for the RNC was was actually quite complex and sophisticated because there was this kind of balance between between racial and ethnic grievance and the sort of nod to to progress and diversity but i don't know that i don't know that that kind of message you know i don't know how that landed i think that again i think it's really important to and this isn't defending either side 
in this. It's just more of an observation, which I think is an important one, which is, again, I think both sides are trying to engage in this. Uh, they're doing it in different ways, but they're taking the same position and they're going about politics the same way, which I find very interesting. I mean, the, the Democrats are trying to delegitimize um, the Republicans by saying that it, they are a threat to America. And if they win, then this is like America is basically over. They don't use the same language. Republicans are doing the same thing to Democrats in this. And I think that that really highlights this shift. And I, I've talked about this time and time again in our in, on our past episodes and how we understand politics today and how our elites understand politics. And the truly ironic thing about this whole convention that we've just seen with the Republicans and attacking Democrats for being socialists is that, I mean, on one hand, on the policies, I'm not sure there's a lot of disagreement. There may be disagreement on how you go about providing a middle class entitlement in terms of health care to people, whether it's a tax credit or whether it's a direct subsidy. But there's not it's not like they disagree on the fundamental premise. They maybe once did, but I think we've seen that they don't anymore. So I think on policy, there's not a lot of disagreement and on the details. Um, I mean, on the fundamental questions. But what's really interesting to me is that they both see politics in the exact same way, which is they see it as a giant factory. It's a production process. And that inherently is, an, is very, a very Marxist way, a very socialist way of understanding the political process. And Republicans, no less than the Democrats they attack for being socialist, are trying to capture the, the, the political means of production so that they can then win, I guess, and, and have their view of reality, you know, they can do the things they want to do. And to capture the political means of production, they think the best way to do that is to push out of the kind of acceptable circle of political conflict any Democrat or Republican who disagrees with them. And it's the same thing with, with Democrats. And so instead of seeing, you know, and I'm not saying politics was always once, you know, nice and noble and high minded, of course not. But instead of seeing, you know, our politics is essentially about a form of government, as about something in which uh, uh, an activity in which you participate, and then you may engage in, in certain arguments and, and strategies to win uh, that, you know, different skirmishes, if you will. That's fundamentally what it was about. And today it is exclusively, and I think very deep down, about progress towards the promised land, about production, about controlling the factory. And in that, you know, the Republicans, no less than the Democrats, are socialists. It's, it's no less, it's they, they think about politics in the same way. And I know this sounds crazy, but when I look out at American politics right now, I see nothing but sameness. And that's really scary. Yes, it is scary. And, you know, I, I, I certainly agree with you, James, that, that a lot of our politics has just become about delegitimizing the other side. And, you know, I mean, certainly there are important differences between Democrats in Repo and Republicans in how they how they go about this. But, you know, Ultimately, we are in this, this, you know, as I've talked about many times, we're in this real zero sum uh, binary all or nothing fight for for the control of, of government. But over what? I mean, what, this is the funny. What is zero sum? Yeah. Like what's zero sum about this? Like what policy yeah, issues sum? are zero sum? <laughs> there is not that the policy issues aren't zero sum. It's not it's not the, the, the policies that are zero sum. It's the conflict that's zero sum. Right. It. it there, there, there can be no room for the other side to have any power. It has to be total power for our side or else, you know. But they're not using the power for things. That's the, that's the tragedy is that it's not like, 
oh, once we win, we can have we can then achieve uh, progress on these issues that the other side is uh, uh, adamantly opposed to. That that's not what we see, and so it's kind of like it, we're doing this all for nothing. Well, the, but the irony is the flip side of that is you know that the. Re- the, the Republicans' argument is we have to maintain power because otherwise the Democrats are going to turn America into this socially woke dystopia where there's no police and, you know, everybody comes and takes your money and gives it to a poor person. Which is also absurd. Yes, it is. And Democrats, uh, you know, believe that if, if we don't win, then, you know, America will no longer be a democracy. It's going to become an authoritarian uh, Trump dictatorship. Uh and so there's a sense that, that it's, not, it's not about putting us in power to do something that we've promised you. It's about putting us in power because if the other side gets in power, they're going to do this terrible thing that we uh, think should give you nightmares and therefore you should vote for us. And the joke is that no one's going to do anything if they're in power. <laughs> so, I mean, yes and no, right? The, the Trump administration has certainly done things and... They're, you know, they haven't done a whole lot with Congress, but very much I think the the argument there is this is an administration that's going to punish people that, you know, that that Trump's constituents don't like. And that's very much been the vibe of the administration. Um, you know, there's the the punishment has been to people seeking asylum, has been to Muslims trying to get into the country. Um, certainly they haven't been a fan of um, or a friend to education or higher education. Um, and, and, you know, these are industries that, that benefit America and that a lot of Americans use or are employed in. Um, but they're also not industries where the administration has a lot of support. So I think, I mean, I think I see what you're saying legislatively. And I think that that's that that's right. We're sort of lacking in these grand agendas, but a lot can be done outside of a congressional agenda. And, and this it is no longer in the realm of speculation that this administration will use the power of the presidency to punish political adversaries. And that's, I mean, the Obama administration may have, have, you know, done things that weren't great from a policy perspective or that are arguable or that we can we can disagree with but it's just politically tougher for democrats to pull that one off um i this is not to say i don't think some democrats would do that if they if they could or they thought it'd be beneficial they probably would but the nature of the democratic coalition makes that a lot harder um for one thing, I think you have a sort of sense of who is in the Democratic coalition. And, and Liliana Mason has made this point that the parties are are made up of kind of aligned and not aligned identities. And if you're a Republican, it's very likely that other Republicans are the same race and religion as you. If you're a Democrat, it's much less likely. Um, and the Democrats who might be, you know, they're frustrated with red America, they're frustrated with Republicans, but many of them grew up, for example, in these in rural Trump areas. So like some of the discourse you hear about like cities that are a mess, the way that Republicans talk about urban areas, it's much harder for Democrats to pull off talking about rural areas that way because many of their their core constituents have, you know, emotional and personal ties to those places even if they don't live there. And, you know, I just think the nature of the coalitions makes this game a little bit different. But I also think that there's just we need to keep our eye on the fact that the 
there's a whole lot that um, that can be done out of the White House without a lot of input from Congress. And that can very much embody this sort of this negative and affective partisanship that we're describing. And I don't mean to minimize any, uh, you know, uh, the, the pain and suffering that people are experiencing as a result of this administration's policies or as a result of the last administration's policies. And I'm not suggesting that there's stuff that doesn't happen. But my, I think that that stuff is one at the margins. We're not talking about huge, I mean, when, and this is going to sound bad, but I don't mean it that way, about really big earth, you know, moving consequential policy changes. We're talking about presidents using their authority if they're doing so lawfully and tinkering at, at the edges and stuff that they they are empowered to do. And then, you know, as far as like the Muslim ban, for instance, the, you have a, a, a district court judge who then issues a, a, a nationwide injunction and says that it, the president can't enforce that anymore. I mean, so there are... There are things that are happening, sure, but I'm not sure that they're as, it's not as if the presidents are, you know, usurping the power of the constitution to basically declare this a police state. And then on top of that, I would add that, you know, so we're still operating under the same legal framework for the most part, but the presidents, and I think this is also a trend that we've seen, and Trump is just a variation on the theme here, that of using their executive authority in, in questionable ways. And so you have the Obama administration with DACA and, and prosecutorial discretion, and our listeners may like the policy. But the fact is that this is basically the president really pushing up against the line of the Constitution, if not going over it. You have Trump with the COVID uh, you know, executive orders doing the exact same thing, if not actually violating it, which I think he did. You have the reason why the Hatch Act isn't going to be a problem for Trump is one, it doesn't apply to Donald Trump. And two, he gets to make the decision about whether or not you're going to prosecute uh, the senior administration officials who are ostensibly violating it. And he has prosecutorial discretion, as uh, Barack Obama showed us. And so I think that, again, it's not necessarily the content of the policy that I find the same. It's the way in which we conduct our politics, which I think is the same. And that is you know, that's very that's that's the that's the real threat to our political system right now. Well, Let's wrap up here uh, on that bright note and, and ask, is there, is there anything that institutionally we could do to make our campaigns better? I mean, it seems like one of the things that we talked about was that we should have conventions that actually mean something where there's meaningful debate between uh, different factions in the, in the parties that maybe we should have uh, campaigns that are more about policy. Is there any way that we can get there? Or is it just saying we should do all these things and, and hoping that they happen? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I've thought a lot about, and we haven't mentioned this, but obviously the DNC was supposed to happen um, a couple miles away from me in, in Milwaukee. And I was really concerned um, in the before times that this was, people were going to kind of come in, go downtown, go to the lake and like not see the rest of the city. And I wonder if if conventions can happen in person, if they can be, kind of more engaged in their in their location and that some of the stuff the stuff that was done superficially in the virtual conventions where they brought in ordinary people to kind of make statements but I wonder if there are ways in which conventions can become less closed and elite events and and actually incorporate more of those those perspectives and I don't know how to pull that off logistically but I think that's maybe the only way for them to be to be relevant um, and a lot, there's a lot of work, I think, to be to be done um, in that regard. I think that 
I'm I'm an optimist. I'm I'm inherently an optimist, and I do I find Julia's um, analysis about the divisions, especially in the Democratic Party and the ones in the Republican Party, have been well known for a while. They're very real, and I think a lot of how we conduct our politics today, which is a point you brought up, Lee, um, in terms of you know the America is going to end. This is language that is clearly designed to appeal to the outliers, people who are otherwise unsatisfied. Uh, you know, the crazies, the knuckle draggers, you know, I use those terms affectionately because I like the outliers. I think they're the, the liberals and the conservatives. I think they matter and they're the, ultimately the secret of, of how this is going to change. And so you, they say, come along with us, even though AOC, come along with us, even though we're not really going to do anything, because if you don't, then like Hitler's going to be in control. Or, you know, come along with us, you know, all of you, you conservatives who are free traders, because if you don't, then Hugo Chavez or, you know, somebody is going to be in control. And so it's it's, a, it's designed to scare the, the, the wings of who would otherwise be using these venues to challenge um, the establishment and hold them accountable and their voters and supporters into supporting uh, the, the status quo. And that's why the status quo keeps on going, even though we have all these threats of, of dramatic change in America ending, when in reality, it doesn't end um, on either side. But, uh, you know, conventions don't matter until they do. And conventions like Congress, the judiciary, the presidency, you know, voting booths, these are all places where people are going to go to participate in an activity. And when those people decide that they want to change things, then those places are going to be the venues where they will change things. And so right now we are just in a holding pattern until Americans realize that the joke is on them and that if they want to change things, they need to actually do what, what liberals and conservatives did in the 1960s and get involved in politics and try to change things. And then that will take them to the voting booth. And it will take them to hold their uh, elected officials accountable. And it will take them to the convention floors to fight what they see as otherwise status quo politicians who are just making a bunch of promises but have no intent on holding them accountable. I think your, your description of this as a holding pattern is, is far too benign. When both sides use this language of, of existential risk, and I mean, as as a as somebody who's who's always supported Democrats and and aligns with with the left, I mean, I, a lot of those criticisms of the Trump administration resonate, you know, very closely with me. And I really do worry uh, about the anti-democratic tendencies of 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 Trump and particularly a second Trump administration. But I think that the this is. This is the doom loop that I keep going on about, which is this escalating rhetoric of demonization on the other side. And as we look ahead to our November election and uh, worry about potential for violence, potential for a result that is seen as illegitimate by half the country, that, that this strategy is not just uh, sort of empty promises, but it's in many respects incitements to, to violence. And this is the, the thing that I really worry about. So on that happy note, uh, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.